0: Hello, Dennis. Yo, Jesse. We are back
1: at so- and Conchilium this week. Where else would we be? I know. But this time we finish our, the and Concilium section on the Holy Eucharist. We Absolutely. completed something in and Conchilium.
0: Yeah, we're trucking along. Still getting lots of really positive feedback from people, so in your face, Chris. And John Johnson over in the Holy Land. Thanks for your input and thanks for listening. Absolutely.
1: And uh, we have some really cool stuff going on this summer, Speaking right? of the Eucharist, we have a whole entire course on the Eucharist this summer in our summer session, 2019 Eucharist Origins and Structures. It's a three-week class with... Father Uwe Michael Lang, who is quite famous for his knowledge of things theological and his books and his close friendship with Pope Benedict Sixteenth, Benedict Real smart guy. Yes. And uh, one on the liturgical movement, or the introduction to the theology of the 20th century and liturgy, one on Christian initiation, so that'd be the sacraments of initiation, and also another one on the Eucharist with our very own local professor, Dr. Lynn Boughton, who is always full of interesting ideas. And the dates
0: for the summer session this year, they it runs from June 9th through July 19th. So that is
1: correct. It's the second Monday in June and then goes through the next six weeks, ends the third week in July.
0: And I always love... The time that we have during the summer session We have all the students come And the liturgies are really grand We usually have somebody who plays the organ and Our awesome campus Absolutely And just lots of really great fun times are ahead in the summer So mm-hmm. uh, go to liturgicalinstitute.org institute, If you want to find out more about our summer program summer And without school, summer and we, school, summer school That's subliminal messaging hey, from it. us do it, do it <laughs> So without further ado Episode 20 of Season 3 of The, the Liturgy, Liturgy Guys, Guys. Enjoy
1: All right. So paragraph 51, we've been talking about the Eucharist and Vatican II, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we ended last time on all these riches in the mass and you should go do them and therefore the mass should be revised in a way that would facilitate the doing of all those good things. So 51 talks about the first of those good things we should do and not ignore. The Chris.
2: B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. What? I
1: don't know that. Man.
0: Bibble? Let's bibble. <laughs> the
2: treasures of the Bible are to be opened up more lavishly, so that richer fare. Do, fair, do you says. do you have quotes around yours? So that richer fare. No, it it just says richer no, fare without quotes. May be provided for the faithful at the table, the table of, of God's, God's word. word. Mm. This reminds me of, and this is uh, this eating from the table of God's word is a theme that starts here, and it's in another places, it's in the subsequent documents, mm-hmm. but they. I don't know. I mean, it, what it reminds me of is the biblical stories at uh, Ezekiel and probably uh, John and Revelation, they where ate they the scrolls, they and the they scroll got sick. and they. Well, at first it was uh, what honey, like, like honey, honey in, in their mouth, mouths. and then bitter in the. Wait, in they the would stomach. eat. They would eat the scroll. Yeah. Well, the angel takes the scroll and he rolls it up and he says, "Here, eat it." And so we. But I mean,
0: this is. Um, it, it's we're and talking then, about, a, and he's a, like, "Do you have any uh, ranch dressing, please?" <laughs> no, that's not. In <laughs> That'd be the, fun okay. at the end of the, the word of the Lord here.
1: <laughs>
0: well, but
2: uh, I think it's a helpful image that the, the, take it the into substance, yourself. yeah, the substance of the word is not. Uh, well, if Jesus I is the remember, word. We consume the word. Exactly. That's exactly the point. Did I, I jump ahead? I'm sorry. No, no, no. no I, that don't was uh, you're, timed. you're a Shakespeare guy, though, right? Uh, sure. Isn't Let's it? Go uh, with that. Isn't it Falstaff? Falstaff. Not. Do you remember Falstaff? Beer. Yeah, millennial. Uh, Falstaff says something like, uh, what is words but, you know, breath and teeth and tongue. that may, You know, they just, they just disappear. But the word here at the liturgy, especially in the liturgy, is substantial. It's the logos. And so uh, St. Gregory the Great, uh, 59604, we'll Every say. Every after that is. That, uh, the mediocre. Is no good. <laughs> It uh, says that uh, uh, the divine word grows together with the one who reads them. Mm-hmm. This is uh, in. Uh, anyway, so imagine you, you're, you're reading this word, you're hearing this word, you're praying this word, it's entering your, your bloodstream, and it's even. Do you, you remember the word that uh, Ratzinger uses in his uh, little book? I can't remember the title.
1: Spirit of the Liturgy? Oh, that's that the one. one, yeah. Oh, yeah. Logos? Yeah, you, yeah so you get what? Logos incarnatus. You get logicized.
2: Yeah, when wordified. you hear the word, you get wordified because to hear the word in the liturgy is so transformative that it gets into your system and it makes you sound like because the second person. Of you may
0: be the only gospel someone ever reads. Oh, that's nice. (laughs) It's one of those like
1: (laughs) meme quotes that's all over Facebook. Uh, But you might say, what does a word do for me? Well, think about every hurtful thing that anyone has ever said to you. The last fight you had with somebody and they said, you're a big blankety blank. All that was was sticks and stones. Word. It was just sound coming across the airwaves, stimulating the tympanic membrane in your ear and nerve things to your—it's all chemicals, but ultimately, what is it? Someone harms you with word, right? There's Word has power. Or they can encourage you. Oh, I remember when I was in 10th grade and my teacher told me XYZ and then changed my life forever. It's just a word, but word has power. And so, if they in the model before the Council that the scriptures were rather limited in their scope, you know, there was a gospel and an epistle, but only one reading. All in Latin and not proclaimed necessarily in the But they would read it understand. in the, the
2: vernacular afterwards.
1: Sometimes there? that Sometimes. was a concession of the liturgical movement, but before that mm-hmm. they ne- didn't necessarily do it. And it didn't always
2: happen either. Well, unless the other part of 51, uh, in this way a more representative portion of the Holy Scriptures will be he- uh, read to the people in the course of the prescribed number of years. Right. So before the Council, the cycle of readings was on a single... One-year cycle. One-year cycle. and then so Oh, now,
0: that's a long Mass then. Sorry, is that bad that that's the first thing that I react to?
2: <laughs> so every year would, have, would follow the same cycle of readings. And now it's spread over, at least on Sundays. Three years. Three and if years. I understand
1: it right, there wasn't much Old Testament reading. They would have epistles a lot, but not too much of the Old yeah, Testament was encountered.
2: Okay. And it, so on the one hand, you get much more, uh, variety is the right way to say it, but uh, much more representative uh, sampling. Somebody noticed uh, too though is uh when you had it on it. when you heard them every single year you really started to associate the particular readings with a particular feast and in, in some ways it, it let the word be, become more uh memorable but now
0: that now that we've been a long years. time yeah. so I, but again this is a, like we said in the last podcast I still feel that this way, is though, the, sometimes you know like you I mean you have the specific readings they might be different versions but you hear them at the, the feast of the Presentation of the Lord or the Transfiguration, and so...
2: Yeah, some feasts have their, their proper text, but others uh, don't. I mean, the, the the readings on the third Sunday of Ordinary Time are going to be from Matthew and then Mark and then Luke, and then, mm-hmm. then you're going to go back. So um, anyway, you hear more, but not
1: as intensely. Right. So if you ever have your A, B, and C cycle, and you don't know what year it is, and it's your job to put the lectionary out on the, on the AMBO, and you're like, oh, Father, is it your A, B, or C... Thank you, Vatican II, for that, right? Because a three-year cycle of readings there. It's like a tricycle. A tricycle, exactly. (laughs) But then 52 follows up on that, that by means of the homily, the mysteries of the faith and the guiding principles of the Christian life are expounded, does it use the word expounded in Mm -hmm. your translation, from the sacred text during the course of the liturgical year. So it says the homily should be highly esteemed as part of the liturgy itself. I don't know that that would be the case necessarily in many instances before the council, that if there was a homily at all, they might skip it, or they might make it kind of a catechism lesson, not necessarily talk about the readings of that day. Why is your brow so furrowed, Chris? Uh,
2: I was talking to somebody about, who's trying to explain to me the maniple, and I think in the extraordinary form, which is a cloth that hangs over the arm, left arm, right? Left yep. arm, correct? I think so. Okay. And <laughs> well, apparently, apparently right. it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> removed. This is what the person was saying to me is that it was removed during the homily because
1: strictly speaking, the homily wasn't considered a part of the liturgy. Ah, interesting. I don't know if sounds that's like an accretion to me. Yeah. The yeah. sermon might've been seen as some kind of beneficial catechism class that uh, the, the uh, pulpit was outside the sanctuary as well. So they would leave the sanctuary and the pulpit and go up there. Hmm. And so the ambos now are in the sanctuary. It's well, and the, the readings were,
2: pro- were read from the, from the altar itself, right?
1: Right. If they were, they might not have been proclaimed in the vernacular. Okay. So it'd be up at the altars, the old gospel side and epistle side. if you go to extraordinary form mass, you can see the altar boy will take the, missile stand or the the reading stand off the left, come over, put it onto the, off the right side, put it on the left side for the reading of the gospel. Oh,
0: that's fascinating.
1: Um, but homilies that are about the liturgical year, the readings, this feasts, the saint of the day, whatever it is, sounds pretty obvious to us. So this is one of the things that really happened pretty quickly after Vatican II, uh, partly because they were already doing it before Vatican II, um, was something that was promoted here. And it's, but you, when it says something like the end of 52, it should not be omitted except for a serious reason on Sundays and Feasts of Obligation. That means somebody's omitting them, right? A lot of people are omitting them. Um, and so to admit, omit them only in a most serious reason means this is part of the liturgy itself. It's important. The homily is important. And if you think about it liturgically, it's right before, or almost right before the Eucharistic liturgy, right? So you have to be prepared through it. What have you just heard? like the road to Emmaus. right? What have you just heard? You don't know anything? Well, let me tell you. Let me explain all these mysteries to you, so then you can see him in the breaking of the bread. So there it is.
2: Yeah, that uh, that image of the disciples on the road to Emmaus was used by John Paul II when uh, we celebrated the year of the Eucharist. I Maybe mean, it was uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and that's what Jesus does, is he explains... Later, the disciples rec- recount, were not our hearts burning within us as he explained uh, uh, the scriptures to them? And that's in some of their proclaim, the scriptures are also explained to see how they connect to Christ, which is exactly what Jesus did, how he was foreseen by Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. That
0: is by far my favorite story in the gospel. It is a good one. It's, uh, it's so powerful, love it. Yeah. So that's what the homily is supposed to do.
2: Yeah, right? what happens after the homily? Well, then the, it says the kiss the, of peace. There is to well, be the restored,
1: mm-hmm. the prayer of the faithful, or the common prayer. To be restored, well, I guess that meant it was not there, huh?
2: Yeah, trying to dig back in my uh, liturgical whatever, history, yeah, which is a little sketchy. <laughs> uh, I, I think I remember reading at one point that the petitions at Mass were, had been very much like on Good Friday. I mean, they were—that's they were, how they were every Sunday. You, you know what they're like on Good Friday, the Good Friday liturgy? No, let us kneel, no, let us stand, for the church, yeah. let us go home, civil authority. <laughs> yeah. Well, they got streamlined and eventually, I think, omitted. And I believe that this is a vestige of them As after the creed, the priest would turn to the people and say, uh, Oremus. And then he would uh, turn back around and the altar would be uh, prepared. But I think that Oremus uh, signified the, the position once held by ah, the universal prayer. Again, um, History is, not, I wish we were stronger in my mind uh, than it was. So, take all this with a grain of salt. We could
0: bring <laughs> Kevin in here.
1: He'd <laughs> remember that. Living yeah. history. But, you know, yeah. if you think about what we were saying in the last podcast about offering things for sacrifice, so you're praying for the Pope, the church, the world, civil authorities, local needs, people who have earthquakes, all that stuff, you're bringing them into the offering um, through this offering of the faithful.
2: Yeah. And this is a, uh, there's a couple of things here, uh, for the one comparison, this is a priestly action. Okay. To intercede, uh, for the needs of the world is what a priest does. And so like in the current RCIA, this is, this would be another thing that was restored from the uh, ancient uh, times of the fathers would be the, the model of the catechumenate. So if you're a non-baptized person, you are kindly invited to leave, uh, before the priestly heavy lifting starts. And so people would be dismissed before the universal prayer because they're powerless to intercede because Mm. they don't share in the priesthood of Jesus. Correct. that's why they leave. Right. And also, uh, there's kind of a parallel as the the worthy reception of the Eucharist is in many ways the high point of the liturgy of the Eucharist. The offering of the universal prayer is kind of the high point in a certain sense of the liturgy of the word because Mm -hmm. this is the kind of the priestly consummation of... The liturgy of the word. So it's an important thing that they be restored because this is this is uh, one of the ways where the people can actively participate in the priesthood of Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world and the glory
1: of God. And it's probably worth saying that every single thing we're saying here is probably disputed by some liturgical scholar somewhere, right? So there's there's a, a cottage industry now of. Uh, criticizing the research that led to these kind of reforms of Vatican II, that they didn't know this or they didn't know that, or they were too careless with throwing things out or bringing things in. And so now there's kind of a... critical reform of the critical reform (laughs) as it happened at that time. Um, So, you know, what we try to do here is talk about what is the mainstream thinking at the time that led to these things, and then the question of prudence and whether it was the right or wrong choice 50 years later is something we'll let other scholars deal with here. We're just reading the Count's documents in their own own context. Because every time you say something, someone will say, oh, well, do you know about the such and such manuscript? I'm like, no, I don't. I have Vatican II in front of me. That's what we're talking about. All right, so in, how would this be further uh, advanced in 54? In Masses which are celebrated with the people, and they say that a lot, which is surprising because we think that doesn't happen very often now, but it was a pretty common thing back then when every priest had to say Mass every day. You mean Mass celebrated without people? Yeah, oh yeah, right. To yeah. say that it, in masses celebrated with the people is kind of a funny thing because- Now we, it's
0: Mass <laughs> celebrated with one minister? What
1: is it called?
2: Yeah, that's, well, it, it's called uh, Mass at which only one minister assists,
0: right? It's as much to it.
1: private mass, right? But a suitable place may be allotted to their mother tongue. And this is the, uh, so they say first place to the readings and the common prayer is what we were just talking about the prayer of the faithful and as local conditions may warrant to those parts, which pertain to the people. So that is the interesting thing that the first intention was you got readings proclaimed to people. It's for the people. You've got prayers of the faithful, which theoretically rise up from the people. That should be in the language that they understand, right? That will help them offer themselves and participate in these things. So some people will say, well, that's really what Vatican II intended, that the vernacular would be in those places, and that the later extension was sort of not uh, true to the original intent of Vatican II. But again, people argue these things in all different yeah, ways.
2: Yeah, well, that this, the word you used is suitable. I think people of uh, uh, good faith and uh, orthodox thinking can debate, and in fact they do debate, on well, what is suitable. See, In fact, that next paragraph, uh, nevertheless, steps should be taken so that the faithful may also be able to say or sing together in Latin those parts of the ordinary of the Mass which pertain to them. Now, how often have you heard Vatican II uh, abolished Latin or got rid of Latin? Or when you use Latin, uh, they say, oh, you're going back to before Vatican II. Nope. (laughs) I've never heard that. (laughs) You haven't? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Vatican II clearly didn't not only didn't abolish Latin, but it wanted encourages. you, encourages all the people to say those, you know, a good example. I don't know when this podcast will uh, air. Um, Probably
0: never. World
2: <laughs> Youth Day, right? Is I mean... This should happen in your local parish, but here's one uh, example of, so you have people coming from all over the world. Some speak English, some speak Portuguese and Spanish and every, you know, all sorts of other languages. Well, when they come together as a sign of unity uh, in the Mass, everybody conceivably, if we followed the spirit and the text, uh, the council would be able to join in one voice in this sacrament.
0: And the, can, the canonization, I went to the canonization of yeah. John Paul II and John Twenty-Third. that was all Latin too. And there was like, you know, a million people there. And they did Latin because it was what everybody had access to. Mm -hmm.
1: Yep, I remember when I was, uh, my first job after college was working for the Angelicum in Rome, and my uh, boss was a priest, and the Dominican, and this other Dominican walked by, and the Dominican was from Poland, the other Dominican, and my boss didn't speak Polish, and the Polish Dominican didn't speak English, and they just talked in Latin a little bit to find out (laughs) where each one was from. How cool is that? That was a great
2: story with uh, 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 St. Thomas More and uh, Erasmus, who were great friends, And Erasmus spoke, well, he was from, he was Dutch, right? So he spoke. I don't know, but (laughs) I want to name my next child Erasmus. (laughs) And Thomas More spoke English, but they got together and uh, spoke Latin together. Latin was the lingua franca of the church back then.
0: Nice. Yeah, thanks. I heard there's an ATM in Rome that still has Latin as its Is that true? It says says ATM in Latin, or or, or like all of the all of like the language of the ATM machine.
1: ATM machine. Oh my gosh! Well, that gives new meaning to (laughs) Deus ex Machinus. Anyway,
0: but in all these things, whether
2: it's uh, the mother tongue or the homily or the sacred scriptures or the uh, universal prayer, they're all to uh, facilitate active participation. But
1: at fifty-five, yes, hearty endorsement. I like that. Is given to the closer to that closer form of participation, whereby the faithful, after the priest's communion, receive the Lord's body under elements consecrated at that very sacrifice. In other words, don't just have the big host for the priest and then go to the tabernacle and bring out fifteen saboria full of little hosts from last week, but actually that event should be where the ideally where those hosts are consecrated.
2: Yeah, and it, well, a couple of things. One. Uh, the, the the, the, Pope who first used the term active participation, he wasn't the first person to use it, but the first Pope who used it was Pius X. Pius X. Trellis his, and he's
0: November 22nd, 1903. Patron 1903 patron I legit knew that guy. Oh my gosh. He's didn't. the patron
2: saint of what, Jesse? First communicants. First communicants. Oh, sorry. You taught us it's, that a few weeks uh, ago. That's uh, how I knew. That
0: it. I legit did not know. <laughs> All right. So if
2: you want to know what uh, kind of the genesis of active participation was, and what the, the Pope who used it for the first time had in mind, bear in mind that he's also the patron saint of the worthy reception of Holy Communion and the grace that's available through uh, the worthy reception of the he Eucharist.
0: he lowered the age?
2: He did a couple of things. In a period of uh, Jansenism, which was kind of a rigorous, I mm-hmm. suppose Calvinistic sort of thing, where people never received communion because they weren't worthy, which were not worthy. But that's why you receive it. So we're not worthy. That's, we're not worthy. Well, that's a fact. What we say, we're not worthy. that You should come under my roof. But you know, when you're cold, you go to the fire, and when you're sick, you go to the doctor, and when you're lacking grace, you go to the source. Uh, but he also he encouraged adults to receive often, but also children. He lowered the age from uh, apparently it was around age twelve or fourteen to about the age of discretion. So that was Pius uh, the tenth. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we talked before. In, in some ways in some ways, we help to make that sacrifice. Unless we're sitting there as strangers and silent spectators, we have contributed our labor and ourselves into that sacrifice that has been uh, offered on the altar. And so it's uh, uh, appropriate and suitable that in fact we receive back that very sacrifice that we contributed to offering. So it's sacramentally and symbolically, symbolically in the fullest sense appropriate that that's what we actually eat because we had a hand in making it what it
1: is. Mm -hmm. So it's not just leftovers, it's fresh (laughs) off the griddle (laughs) so and But that's, just a, that's one of these fuller sign kind of things, right? It happened at that moment with you yeah. and your participation. Yeah. Cookies don't taste better to a kid when the kid helps make them, but boy, I made these is a different experience than not. Yeah. And then it, we cruise through a bunch of paragraphs here, right, about other things. Uh, 55 says, communion under both kinds may be extended if the bishops think. And it's interesting what they think the cases are where you would do that to the newly ordained mass. To the newly ordained in the mass of their sacred ordination, (laughs) like that, they didn't receive both the species, but they do at that one. To the newly professed mass of the religious profession, to the newly baptized in a mass following their baptism. So it does seem rather limited uh, how they would think communion under both species would be.
2: Yeah, and that's the thing that has really changed over the last 50 years is eventually all of these came to be summarized into whenever the diocesan bishop thinks it's appropriate.
0: Did... did is this document what um, removed intinction? In?
2: Nothing is removed intinction. That's a valid way to legit. to receive communion today. But
0: self-intinction—that's not. Yeah, legitimate. there was that was, that that was ne- never allowed.
2: Never, no, okay. No. Um, yeah, So, right so today in most uh, American parishes, I suspect uh, communion under both forms is, is a common practice on Sundays. But Maybe not Sunday during weekdays. Yeah. yeah correct.
1: Just because it takes a lot of people and it's hard to do. Right.
2: Okay. And why is that an appropriate sign to receive under both forms?
1: It's the fuller sign, body and blood of the full Eucharistic banquet.
2: Okay, and so it's so a fuller sign not only of the Paschal banquet, which is what the Mass is, but also the Mass is a... Sacrifice. Okay, so you're receiving uh, body and blood as well. Yeah, so sacramentally, it uh, lends itself to, uh, you know, to people who are paying attention to uh, actively
1: participate. Don't give us the five-minute time. We're going to talk till we're done. Oh, <clears throat> darn it. <laughs> I can't even ring the bell. But I think we can make it through 58. Oh, yeah. So then, you know, sort of a little re, restatement in 58. The two whoa, parts. Whoa, whoa, the, the, what, 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 about what 57? What? Oh, 56, sorry. No, no, no. F- well, 56, and. Yeah, the two parts make up the Mass. The Liturgy of the Word and the Eucharistic Liturgy are so clearly connected with each other, they make one single act of worship. So,
2: So Dennis, how
1: late can I actually get to Mass? And That's l- not and make the way you make to it think. count. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Gosh. know, fulfill your obligation.
0: Although I I do love a good liturgical uh, loophole. uh, There's there's
2: a lot of them. (laughs) No, I don't know. That seemed to be an oft asked question. Well, well, whether it's still, it
1: may still be, but it, it, uh, it's hard to find an. It's harder to find an answer in this right. life. If the liturgy of the word is part of the same act. How much of it can you miss? Well, I don't know. We don't know.
0: I think the intent for most people when they ask that question is they just they want to know is you know where's the threshold of how I can fully participate in the liturgy um, if I just happen to be a little bit late.
2: Yeah, well, take that image of the disciples on the road to Emmaus again. You imagine like a third guy just shows up and says, hey, guys, here we are. Sorry I am. Sorry, it took me a while to catch up. You know, there's something that's missed out. And in one of the places, the council will say Christ is present in uh, in the proclamation of the word. And so this is uh, we're, we're, we're losing out on occasions of grace to uh, to meet Christ in the word and to prepare ourselves for more worthily uh, offering the sacrifice and receiving of the sacrifice. Yeah. But again, I, you know, it's, it's often an important question because you're running late because, you know, kids or, weather or whatnot or your wife, I, I think it's, or... it's ra- <laughs> I think it's rare that people are just saying, well, mass is at 1030. I don't have to be there till 11. I don't know if anybody puts it that way anymore.
1: All right. We're cruising through 57 con celebration. What's up with that? Well, that's the celebrating of one Mass with lots of priests present. I think that's something, if you weren't alive during the council, it might not be intuitively obvious. that I'm
0: pro-celebration, not con-celebration. Yeah, well,
1: there you go. Pro-celebration was when, uh, well, before that, you had every priest had to say their own Mass every day. So if you go to an old seminary or a monastery... You'll see usually basements full of altars with twenty or thirty altars, and there's
0: some here on this campus too. There's a,
1: at the retreat center, right? There's yeah. still some places down there because that was for a lot of priests who were saying mass every day, <laughs> and um, they had to say their own mass. And sometimes they would have two masses a day in places like seminaries and monasteries. So each priest would say their own low mass or quiet or private mass, and then there might be the conventual mass after. You hear that a lot from the older folks at the seminary here that they would each go to low mass somewhere in the basement that one altar, and they would be altar servers. And then they would have the conventional mass upstairs. You went to mass twice on Sundays. Was that
2: concelebrated then? Is that what you mean? No, the but conventional it was the,
1: the priest would be in choir in the conventional mass. Oh, okay. But they wouldn't, wouldn't be concelebration um, because they were pushing the idea that mass is a social, quote-unquote, or a community event. So they were really pushing that there would be the high mass afterward where everybody would be in attendance.
0: So. Yeah.
2: So it says here at 57, Concelebration whereby the unity of the priesthood mm-hmm. is appropriately manifested, or we could say sacramentalized. Why is concelebration a uh, sacramentalization of the unity of the priesthood? Because there's one priesthood of
1: Christ and it's all happening at the same time. I think so. Okay. Yeah, that, that one's a little confusing. They don't quite explain that, how the one priesthood of Christ, the unity is appropriately manifested. I think it's easy to think of the priest dividing, dividing, dividing out in parishes, but it's really the one sacrifice of Christ, even as it's multiplied in lots of places. And it says it's remained in use in this day to this day in the church, both in the East and in the West. Now the East had it in certain circumstances. I don't know where it was in use in the West before. I asked myself the same question. But uh, here's the things they say you when you can do it. So con celebration is so common now that we don't really think of it as having any reasonable time that it wouldn't happen. But they say on Thursday of the Lord's Supper, Mass is during because right, the, the priesthood conference.
2: is born on
1: Holy Thursday, along with the chalice, uh, yeah. is the birth of the priesthood, and that, the Chrism Mass also, which is mm-hmm. often a high point with the bishops and all the pr- bishop and all the priests there. It's so basically wherever there's a lot of priests in one place, so masses during councils. Well, yeah, I don't know if it says that by. Oh yeah, conventual mass, the principal mass in churches. Um, uh, the mass for the blessing of an abbot would be the same kind of thing, a, and a big important event, and you have a lot of uh, monks there. Mass is celebrated at any kind of priest meetings, whether the priest be secular clergy or religious. What does secular clergy mean? This is a confusing Those worldly yeah. clergy who <laughs> are into I the, also want to know that. Yeah, What's that means that? typically it would mean priests who were out in the world. So in parishes, diocesan clergy, as opposed to religious who were in monasteries or in some place where they were considered out of the world. We think of secular as worldly. But they thought of it more as out in the regular world as opposed oh, that to makes religious sense. life. And so the bishops are able to um, regulate this, but nonetheless, in the classic Vatican II two-step, they say you can do this, but you also may do this: that uh, each priest shall always retain his right to celebrate mass individually, though not at the same time in the same church as a concelebrated mass. So that's interesting. When uh, oh, when you go to Rome, that
0: happens, right?
1: Yeah, because there's lots of altars yeah. around and lots of visiting priests. You were at lunch, Were you at lunch with us that day when Bishop Perry? Oh, that was, was fascinating. There? I think it was Bishop Perry, and he talked about uh, being at a wedding, and there was the nuptial mass at the high altar, and it was a custom at that time where, where he came from that there would be two priests. If they if you really were doing the you know putting on the dog, you'd have a priest at each of the side altars offering mass for the couple at the same time silently. And so there'd be the wedding mass that everybody's paying attention to. And then you would kind of see in your peripheral vision, these other two masses, saying low mass quietly for the benefit of the married couple, which is kind of cool in a way Mm. that they have masses said for the couple, but on the other hand, at the same time, three masses going on at the same time.
0: I I want to bring him on the podcast because I asked him, you know, where was he during the transition? Um, he had good stories he was he was, was in, he was in like the seminary when seminary. when uh the transition was happening and i asked him you know what was what was it like and he said it was kind of chaotic because it was people didn't know what to do or how to do it and some would some would revert, revert back to the old ways and some would you know do all these newfangled things and it was the professors were trying to figure out how to teach it and things like that so i'm this is fascinating i would love to hear more about that i asked him
1: why they said mass twice every day low mass and high mass and he said to keep us busy I think <laughs> all these college students with a lot of energy it wasn't good to leave them around uh, to their own devices so anyway that's up to paragraph 58 a new right for cun celebration is to be drawn up and they did and that's what we have uh, to this day so all the way to 58 uh, 58 good job dennis we're yeah. not quite at the halfway mark still because it's 130 paragraphs plus the appendix, but we're so close now.
0: I thought we had our appendix removed.
1: We didn't. Oh, okay. It was re- reattached.
0: Okay, got it. Chris? Jesse? You're going to answer a question or is Dennis going to? How about we, you guys can both do it. Give me a question okay. I can answer for once. <laughs> All right. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here, but you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well I've known
2: the liturgical institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara who was with him from the beginning I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I I know from the ground up what the um, the LI does and they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the
1: intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan.
0: Mail call, mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care?
1: Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Jesse. Yes. Do you have a question for us? We
0: do have a question. This question comes from Mary. Mary says, have you got any good ideas for how to transform a Catholic high school gym into a sacred space for mass?
1: This is a problem, right? Is it a problem? Because many high schools are now big, and they don't have a chapel that's big enough to hold everybody, and they want an old school mass, so they wind up doing these things in the gym or the cafeteria, and... Or the uh, cafetorium. The cafetorium, caffanasium, whatever it is, mm-hmm. there's, that's usually the only big room in the whole place. So, um, we had a student some years ago named... Ruth. Well, Strickland. Ruth Strickland as well, uh, also uh, Cami French, who teaches at oh, Catholic yeah. high school across the street, and they had the same problem. So the question is, how can you do this? Well, now, Ruth Strickland, who started Jerusalem Studios, is now kind of doing a lot of this. She proposed a project for her school because she was in the theater arts department and she would help paint the sets, uh, the, these big scrims they're called. There's fabric that comes down that's like the backdrop for the, the stage set. And she did those you know, as her work. And so we kind of tied around with the idea of doing one of those that they could keep in the school gym when they had masses and it has Christ in glory and the palm trees and the water. Is it like, the river a, water is it like life a triptych and, type of deal? Yeah. And then eventually it was so popular and with alumni and everything, people started donating money and then they added two sort of side panels to it. And so it's fairly inexpensive, right? The art teacher made it. What, what was the cost? The fabric and the paint. And they roll it up when there's no gym mass and they roll it down when there is a gym mass. and. Suddenly, the whole focus is not on the bleachers and the floor and the basketball stuff, but you have this image of the heavenly Jerusalem, sort of like the uh, Emerald City at the end of the Yellow Brick Road in uh, Wizard of Oz, that all the attention is always there, even though this other stuff is going on. And that's one helpful way uh, to do it. The other ways are just to make the you know the improvised sanctuary as nice as it can be. So you say, oh, it's the gym. Let's just carry in something flimsy. No, it's not. Bring in sub- a substantial-looking altar, if it's wood or whatever it happens to be nice vestments really go a long way if your uh, altar is temporary it's a table then have some nice fabrics around it so that the altar and the action of the altar the ambo and then whatever's behind that and some kind of great image of christ would win the day and then everything else would fade away so basically treat a gym mass the way you would treat the mass as much as it can be take the time decent candlesticks decent vestments decent singing good preaching whatever it would take to make a mass really beautiful just bump it up a notch in, uh, in the gym so that you can have that win the day visually. That's what I would say.
0: Chris, do you have anything to add to that? All right. You are in the room. Can you just like say some things? It... Yes. All right, great.
1: Chris agrees with me. Yes.
0: All right, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God
1: bless.